on one this morning and uh, examine a bit more of this book of the Bible. Uh, let me give you a, bit, a little bit of intro because we've been two weeks in John and we'll be the better course of a year in this book just taking it verse by verse. If you're new, that's our preferred way to, uh, to preach is just to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse so that you understand it. You make sure that I'm not making stuff up, you know, and we'll just, we'll, we'll tackle it verse by verse. So we've done the first 18 verses already. And here's what the book of John is. Okay. It's written by a guy named John. So that's real easy that John wrote John. And John is known as uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he's known as uh, John the disciple or John the apostle. Uh, John was, you could say it this way, this, the book of John is the story of Jesus as told by his best friend. So Jesus had a lot of followers, but out of those followers, there was a, a select group of 12 that were his disciples that lived with him 24-7, traveled with him, uh, did everything with him. They were students full-time with Jesus. And out of those 12, there were three that were kind of in this inner sanctum. Peter, James, and John were those three that were kind of in another tier that got to experience some really special things that the rest of the disciples did not get to experience. And out of those three, there was one who had an especially dear relationship relationship with Jesus, we would say he was Jesus' best friend, humanly speaking, and that was John, the guy who writes his book. So, so will you find in the first 18 verses that John says, my best friend was far more than a human, far more than a religious teacher, far more than a good guy. He was God in the flesh, the eternal creator God, taking on flesh, living among us. He is life. He is light. Most of those who came in contact with him rejected him, but to those that receive him and to those that believe on Jesus, he gives them life and you're actually adopted into the family of God. This is Jesus. And based on that testimony, which is an amazing testimony of who Jesus is, John the Apostle is now going to give us another testimony to support that and to help you see this worked out practically. And that testimony is from another guy named John, John the Baptist. So it can be confusing because you have two Johns in the mix here. But John was and is a popular name. Just out of curiosity, if you have John as a first name or a middle name, or you named one of your children John, let's see all, all the Johns in the room. Okay, so there's probably a handful. Just like here, there's, there's a few different Johns, or we named our children John. Very common in, in this day and age. So there's two Johns, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and we're going to now see not the testimony of John the Apostle, but the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing about John the Baptist's testimony. There are very few characters in all of Scripture that we have a fuller profile on than John the Baptist. We know John the Baptist all about his life. We know his parents' names, his mom's name, his dad's name. We know what his dad did. We know about his birth. We have a long story on the birth of John the Baptist. We know how many siblings he had, which was actually none. We, we know what his mission in life was. We know how John died. We know when John died. We know why John died. We know what John the Baptist wore. We know what John the Baptist ate. We know a lot about this guy. And we are going to see this guy enter into the pages of John the Apostle's Gospel. And we're going to see his testimony of Jesus. So who is this John the Baptist guy? Before we dive in, I'll just give you maybe 90 seconds of background information. John the Baptist was born to uh, mother and father who were very religious people. Zacharias, who was a priest, and then his mother Elizabeth. His mother Elizabeth is cousin to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So... John is six months older than Jesus, and Jesus is his second cousin. 
There's actually a, a kind of a distant relationship. They didn't live in the same city. I don't think they grew up, you know, shooting BB guns together and, and, and playing dominoes or something. But, but, they, but they were related from, from a distance. John the Baptist, we're, we're told, has an amazing birth story where his parents were up, up in age. They could not have children. And miraculously, the Lord granted them a child, John the Baptist. We're told before his birth that, that he was filled with the Spirit of God and that God had a very distinct purpose for his life to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist, we know as he grows up, that he uh, was a bit of an odd duck. He wore camel's hair clothing, and that clothing was, was patched together with kind of this leather girdle. We know that he ate locusts and wild honey. He was a Nazarite, which amongst other things meant that John the Baptist would not have cut his hair, and he would not have shaved his beard. So you can, John the Baptist, you have kind of this rough biker-looking guy who wears hipster clothing and has like a food allergy diet. Like this is a, it's an interesting guy. If you met John the Baptist, you would remember it. You, 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 he may be a little bit eccentric to you, but you would remember it. His ministry was to go out into the woods, basically the wilderness, the desert, and to find people and declare repentance of sins. And then he would baptize people who are repenting of their sins. So John's mission was to walk around to people and say, you're wrong, you're living in sin, you're doing this wrong, which is actually what gets him killed when it's all said and done. That he calls out Herod, uh, the, the ruler of the region, and Herod's wife for living in sin, and his wife Herodias says, I want his head, kill him. So he, his, his mission in life is to, is to tell people you're wrong, and then when they, if they admit it, they would get into the water and confess, yes, I have stolen, I have done wrong, you're right, and he would baptize them. So it's a, it's a unique guy, and we're introduced to him, and he, for all of his eccentricness, we're told this about him in Matthew 11. This is Jesus' words about John the Baptist, which is amazing. Jesus said about John the Baptist, among them that are born of women, so that's all of us, humans, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. So I've got a lot of uh, maybe awards in my life, but I've never had God tell me, you're, you're the best human born. Like that's an award. That, that's an accomplishment, right? So wh what is it about this guy? Is it because he wore camel's hair clothing? Is that why he told this? No, I would say this. It's John's position and mission that makes him so great. And John's position and mission is exactly what our position and mission should be. And there's so much to learn from this man. And this is why out of the gate, John the Apostle says, look at this guy, because he understood it. Based on who Jesus is, he got it. He nailed it, and you need to get it too. So we're going to examine, based on John's position and mission, what our position, our mission should be as followers of Jesus. So let me pray. Well, I want to start just by looking at two very simple things, John's position and John's mission. And from those, I think we can glean how we should operate as, as followers of Jesus. So here was John's position. Very simple. It's not about me. His, his default mode, his default position was that of humility and that of saying it's not about me. And this is exactly what John the Apostle starts to tell us about John the Baptist right away. Look in verse number 19 of John 1. The story begins to unfold. We're going to walk it today all the way down through verse number 34. But look at 19. This is the record of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? 
So John has just started his ministry, and his ministry really is beginning to boom. He's this kind of odd duck out in the wilderness, and people are being attracted to him, and they're going out, and he's baptizing them, and crowds are beginning to form. We would say it this way. John, early on in ministry, is trending, right? He's gone viral. People are starting to really take notice of this guy. And the religious elites and the aristocrats and those that are the city folk of Jerusalem elect kind of a committee to send out to the wilderness to investigate this John the Baptist character and find out, who are you? What are you doing? Tell us about yourself. And so they just come and they ask him flat out, who are you, man? And John, perceiving kind of who they want him to be, answers them not with who he is, but with who he is not. And he says in verse number 20, he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Christ. Now, some people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. Christ or Messiah or Deliverer is the title. And John the Baptist knows that the Jewish people, especially those that are religious, are constantly looking for the Messiah or the Deliverer. Why? Because they're under Roman oppression. They've been promised a Messiah and they viewed the Messiah in terms of, of freedom from those that are oppressing them that one day this is coming. So they're constantly looking for the Messiah. There's a lot of false messiahs that step onto the scene throughout history and say, I'm your Deliverer and, and end up getting you know killed by the Romans or put down or something like that. And so he knows that they're constantly looking for the Messiah. So he tells them flat out, look, you're looking for a Messiah. That's not me. I'm going to tell you at the gate. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not your deliverer. I'm not bringing you freedom. That's not me. So then they go to what they otherwise would have asked. It was always this order. We're looking for the Messiah. If not the Messiah, then we look for Elijah. And if not Elijah, we look for the, for the prophet that Moses promised us. So they ask him this, verse number uh, 21. So they asked him, what then? Okay, you're not the Christ. Who are you? You Elias? He saith, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? He answered, no. So John answers only in the negative. He says, I'm not Elias. Who's Elias? Elias is Elijah. So this is just kind of good biblical information for you to have. In, in the Old Testament, you'll have Elijah or Isaiah or these names. Hebrew names brought over into English. In the New Testament, it's written in a different language. It's written in Greek. So you would have a Hebrew name for Elijah taken over to Greek, and then that Greek has to be brought into English. So you oftentimes will see people's names spelled differently in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. So Elias and Elijah are the same person. It's just, it's just the way it's being translated because it's coming out of a different language. If you've done any linguistic work, you would get that a little bit. So, so he's saying, are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Elijah was the prophet that was caught up in the whirlwind, flew like first class to heaven, right? Just kind of went up ahead and they were looking for him to return one day. Are you Elijah? No. Are you that prophet? Speaking of the prophet that Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18, that there was this prophet that would come kind of with the spirit of Moses, that they were looking for that prophet all the time. Are, are you this guy? John the Baptist says, no, no, I'm not. So they said in verse 22 unto him, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? <clears throat> Look, man, just tell us, who are you? Who are you? We were sent here to investigate you. We have to go back and give a report of who this guy is. So can you just throw us a bone here, man? Just, just off the record even if you want. I don't care. Just tell us who are you? What, what do you have to say about yourself? Here's what John says. Here's who I am. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah, which is the same thing happening here with the translation. That's Isaiah. Just like Isaiah said and had promised a voice of one crying in the wilderness to say, prepare and make straight the way of the Lord, I'm that guy. So what is John doing? He's quoting Isaiah. So let's read those three verses from Isaiah. If you have your outline this morning, those three verses are on there. This will help us understand so much of John's position. John is quoting Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5, 3, 4 and 5. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, or you could say the valleys, the low points will be made high. Every mountain will be made low. The high spots will be taken down. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough places plain or the rough places smooth. Why? So that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So what John the Baptist is saying is exactly what Isaiah told you. That's who I am. Now, what is he saying? The one that prepares the way of the Lord. What is this talking about? In ancient times, when a king would be traveling a long distance, he would have a, a decent crew of people that he would send ahead of him to prepare the way. I, as a king, am going to travel with my entourage and my caravan and my, you know, maybe my chariots or my, my war chest or whatever it may be. I'm going to have a big group. I need to send a group ahead of me, and they are going to prepare the way. They're going to take the, the, the real low spots that would be tough to get through, and they're actually going to do some excavation. They're going to bring them up. They're going to take the real high spots that would be tough to travel on. They're going to make them low. They're going to take the crooked places and make them more straight. They're going to make the real rough places smooth and plain. They're going to prepare the way of the king, prepare the way of the Lord, so that when I come behind them, it's smoothed out and I can travel with ease, right? So it's, it's our modern version of GPS and pin dot rolled into one. People to go ahead and see, oh, trees fell. Don't go that way. Go this way, right? Or people to go ahead and to, and to do road work and to make sure you could travel. And, and Isaiah prophesied of someone who would come and would do this sort of work that would prepare for the king. And it says, when that person comes and prepares, the glory of the Lord shall be re- revealed. This is why John, earlier in the first 18 verses of this chapter, went out of his way to say that when Jesus comes, it's the Word made flesh, God dwelling among us, and we, when He came, beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What Isaiah predicted to happen, happened. The forerunner came, the preparer came, and then the glory of God in Jesus Christ came behind Him and was revealed to all. So John is saying, I'm that guy. What, what is he saying? I'm the dirt crew. I'm, I'm the, I'm the blue collar laborer. I'm nobody. I am the one who is preparing the advancement of someone else. I am just making sure that it's easy for you to view Jesus. I am just making sure that you, that you understand when he comes that it's about him and it's not about me. I am the one, I'm just the microphone. I'm just a voice. He's the word. I'm just the voice. That's all I am. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm just trying to prepare the way for someone coming behind me. I want you to look at the king is what I want you to do. Verse number 24. Then they which were sin of the Pharisees, they asked him and said unto him, Then why baptize thou if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, nor the prophet? They're still hung up on what John already told them. Okay, man, this, uh, we're trying to get this to compute here. 
If you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, then, then what authority do you have to baptize people? We're, we're trying to understand this. Why are you doing this? Verse 26, John's going to completely deflect their question. John answered saying, yeah, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is prepared before me. Speaking of the one who would prepare the way. The, the dirt crew wasn't really the, that wasn't what people were looking for. They were looking for the king who would come after the one that comes after me is preferred before me. Whose shoes latch it, I'm not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. So John completely deflects her question and says, yes, I baptize with water. whoop de doo You're focused on the wrong thing here. What I'm telling you, you need to take your eyes off of me and you need to stop reporting about me and you need to stop being so inquisitive about me and so intrigued by me. I'm telling you there's one among you whom you don't even know. You're, you're, you're trying to investigate the wrong story here, guys. Drop the story and put the headline where the headline needs to be. There's one coming after me who's preferred before me who should be exalted. And I'll tell you the difference here. I am not worthy to unloose his shoes. What is he saying? He's saying what they all would have known. In the first century, you wore open-toed sandals with kind of latchets on them. And when you got to a place... The, the most menial, dirty, disgusting job you could have would be to clean the feet of the people who walked. Why? Because there's a lot of dust and dirt? Yeah, but more than that. You would generally try to walk on already made roads. Other people would walk on the already made roads. And they did not drive their automobiles and spill oil. They drove their animals and spilt animal stuff. <laughs> right? And you would have walked among that all day. So when you got done, your feet are nasty, disgusting. And John says, here's the delineation. I'm, I don't count myself worthy. This one is so high. I don't count myself worthy to wash his disgusting feet. I'm, I'm that low. You, you are focused on me. I, I don't consider myself worthy to be a servant to, to wash his feet. And you're trying to investigate me. Look at the one who's coming and investigate that. Put your attention there. You think I'm a big deal? I'm not. I'm not the big deal. I'm the pre-show. The main show's coming. Stop this. John's position is that of utter humility. And that is, I believe, one of the great reasons that Jesus said, among those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. What made this man so great is that he knew his position and he knew the humility that he should have. He understood who Jesus was, he understood who he was, and he lived that out. I don't want the spotlight. Put Jesus in the limelight. Now, I personally think there's no place in the world that a lesson on humility and pride is more needed than in the United States of America, just because of who we are. So who are we? We're, we're, well, we're Americans. Who are Americans? We are the self-proclaimed greatest country in the world, are we not? You ever think about that for a moment? Like, did, did, did the United Nations get together and come up with the greatest country award and hand that to us? Did J.D. Power give this to us 10 years running? We gave it to ourselves, right? If your boss named himself employee of the month, you would have a problem with that, would you not? If Gronk names himself Super Bowl MVP tonight, you would have a problem with that. 
You would say, who are you? How dare you? How could you possibly do that? We, we are the people that have done that. All right, we, we are, okay, yeah, home, <laughs> home of the free, land of the brave. This is, this is us, a world superpower. You know, we've been blessed by God. And I understand that the poorest of people in this room will have far more than, than many of the people of the world will have. I get that. But it's, it is very easy for us, just by default of where we've been born and we're American citizens, to be plagued with pride. It's very easy. This is what David Rhodes said about pride, which I think is, is so accurate. He called pride the dandelion of the soul. He said a dandelion, which is a unique weed, he said its roots go deep and only a little bit left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest of encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. And John, who was a good guy, understood who he was, and he was not prideful. He was not self-aggrandizing. He was not self-praising. He wasn't about self-advancement. He was all about an extreme humility advancing Jesus. John gets that, and I think it's something that we stand a chance to learn from. I want to give you, and I'll give them to you quickly, I want to give you six signs of pride. I want to give you a bit of an acid test for how you could know, hmm, have I figured this out? Am I like John the Baptist? Do, do I get my position? Do I get the humility that I'm supposed to have? Or do I struggle with this? And I'll be the first to admit I struggle with it. But let's see if you do. Signs of pride. One, you, <laughs> you, you say you don't struggle with pride. All right, so that's an easy one. That's bottom shelf. But the moment you say, hey, I'm, I'm not prideful. I got this figured out, is the first sign that you actually do struggle with pride. Second one, your goal is to be liked. There are a lot of people that go through life and they, they want to be liked. Now, to be fair, being liked is not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not telling you to be odd for God and have a martyr complex and, and try to get everyone to despise you. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if your goal is to be liked by everyone, really deep down there's only one reason for that and it's pride. This comes out a lot in what we typically think of when we think of liking nowadays is social media. I want a heart. I want a thumbs up. I want to be liked. I want to be friended. And, and lots of people, especially those of you that are younger in the room, you probably struggle with this a bit more, that you want your profile or your perception that's put out there to people on your Snapchat or your Instagram or your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever it is. You want it to, to, be, to be nice and glossy. You want it to be real good. You want people to like you. That's why you go back to your post 10 times in a day to see how many likes have I gotten now. Was this my most liked post of the year? I'm trying to beat 150 or I'm trying to beat 350. Or I'm trying. Why are you doing that? Deep down, that's pride that's rooted in there. Why is it that we're disturbed when someone unfriends us? Why is it that we think, they'll think I'm so clever when I post this. All that's happening inside of there is this desire to be accepted. And that's an issue for a lot of us where, where we cannot stand to possibly be rejected. And I have to be accepted and liked by everybody. And that's pride working its way out in your life. Here's a huge one. If you're older in the room, this will hit you more. You think you're self-made. Pride roots itself in this idea that I'm self-made. And this is very American, by the way. I meet a lot of people, even Christian people, who think that the sum total of their life is the byproduct of their intellect, their education, their work ethic, their abilities, the end. 
that all that I have in life is, is because of me. And I'm going to take the blessings of life. I'm going to take the success of my life. I'm going to take the good things that happen in my life. And I'm going to leverage them not to give glory to God and not to point people to Him, but I'm going to leverage them to put myself on a platform and to advance myself and say, look at what I did. Listen to me. Give me your ear. I'm Yoda. I, I'm great. You know, I have everything. I've figured it all out. And I'll, I'll take my success and, and make it all about me. I, I'd probably remind you of this verse every six months or so, and I probably will continue to remind you of these verses every six months or so in 1 Corinthians 4. It tells us that we should learn not to think above men that which was written. Don't think too highly of other people. And then it says don't think too highly of yourself. That no one of you be puffed up one against another. I want you to learn not to think too highly of other people. I want you to learn not to think too highly of yourself and not to be inflated and puffed up with pride. How would we learn this? Here's how. For who maketh thee to differ from another? What makes you different from somebody? What hast thou that thou dost not receive? Now if thou dost receive it, why dost thou glory as though thou hast not received it? You know what that's saying? Boil down your life and at its core you'll find that life is a gift. And if life is a gift, why do you glory and take the credit for yourself as though you gave the gift to yourself and you're the gift giver? Why, if all of life is a gift really at its core, then what are you glorying in? Why are you puffed up? Why are you prideful? You say, hold on, time out, Pastor Mark. You know, I, I worked hard. I sacrificed. We, we made the right financial decisions. We listened to Dave Ramsey. I went to school, whatever. You mean to tell me that none of this is, is, is my own doing? None of this is to me? At its core, no, it's a gift. Think about your life for a moment and tell me how your life has turned out. That has nothing to do with your age, your race, your gender, the country you're born in, the family of origin you're from. It has nothing to do with that. All things that are outside of your control. You mean to tell me that you had mom and dad who lived at home, dad went to work, mom stayed home, so you went to school, you came home, mom was there to lovingly receive you, tutor you, help you with your homework, uh, clean up for you, do all those things, then mommy and daddy paid for your, paid for your college, sent you to college, and, and propelled you into a life where you could make more money or whatever it was, that you have your life based on that, and if you would have been over here in this house with a single mom who, who worked her tail off and did her best, but wasn't there to tutor you when you got home and didn't have the money to send you to college, that puts you in, in different households and your life would be exactly the same it is today because of you. Nah. No. You say, are you against that? Like you're belittling that? A mom and dad or they paid for my college or, 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 or some privileges I had? No, no, no. I'm not against that at all. If that's what God has entrusted you with and given you to, that's, you shouldn't resent that. But you shouldn't take credit for it as if you did all of this yourself and that you get all the glory and you're, you're, you're top dog and, and you're awesome. Because of, because of some privilege that is outside of your control. Outside of your control. That's what Corinthians is getting at. Why, why do you glory? Why do you take it for yourself? Why do you act like you're self-made? It's pride. It's pride. The autobiographies we want to write, all of the ways that we view ourselves many times is rooted deep down in us not understanding that every breath you take today is grace. The fact that you can go play with your kids or play with your grandkids today or tomorrow or this week is the mercy of God. The health that you have to go to work versus someone else who doesn't have that same health is a gift. It's a gift. And you have to understand that. And you have to understand that there's some humility there. Abraham Lincoln understood this very vividly in the middle of World War II. He proclaimed a day of national prayer 
World War II, Civil War. I misspoke. Um, you know what I meant. He proclaimed a day of national prayer, fasting, and humility. And in 1863, he made this day. And to set up the day, this is what Lincoln said about Americans. And I dare say we haven't learned the lesson. This is, these are Lincoln's words in the Civil War. We, as Americans, have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That's a long time ago. Lincoln addressed Americans and said there's an issue. We're self-intoxicated on our own success and we think it's because of ourselves and it's not. It's not. And if you, if you go through life thinking, I'm self-made, all this is because of me, deep down what that is underneath of it all is pride. I'll give you another one. It's the opposite, but it's still pride. Those who refuse the, the good of life because you don't deserve it. So this is, this is the, the people that are most prone to say, I don't struggle with pride. Because you're extremely self-deprecating to the point that you will refuse anything good. I, I don't deserve this, so I won't take it. I, I, don't, I don't deserve uh, the family. I don't deserve the relationship. I don't deserve the friends. I don't deserve the promotion. I don't deserve whatever it is. I'm too awful. I'm, I'm too big of a failure. I don't deserve it. What this is is reverse engineering pride. What you're saying at your core when you say that is you're saying, I should earn it, I should deserve it, and I will not receive it until I feel like I've earned it, until I feel like I deserve it. Underneath all of the self-deprecation and the false humility actually still is a sense of oldness, a sense of, of confidence in self that I will only take this when I feel like I've done it and I've pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, then I'll be okay and then I'll take it which is pride. Humility, if you remember Corinthians that we just read, said it's a, it's a gift that you've received. How do you glory in the gift that you've received as you know you didn't receive it? It doesn't say to refuse the gift. Humility will receive the gift, will receive salvation from Jesus Christ, will receive forgiveness of sins, will receive the blessings of life, but at the same time, understand, I know I don't deserve it, I will receive it, and I'll take this gift and give glory and credit and praise and deflect that to Jesus and say this is, this is to the glory of His name. But there are those that want to refuse everything and say that you're, you're humble, but you're not. It's, it's pride deep down. I'll give you two more and we'll be done. These are related to each other. They're cousins. You have the inability to sympathize with people when they're down. Then you have the inability to celebrate with people when they're up. Pride will rob you of your empathy and your sympathy and your compassion. It will be a cancer that grows inside of you and will choke out all of the sympathy of your life. Sorry, poor person. Should have worked harder. I worked hard and did well. Riches are my doing. Your lack is your doing. Sorry, relationship issue guy. Should have read some books. I read Winning with People when I was 18. It helped me out. You should have read it too. You're bad. It's pride. It's pride that chokes out the sympathy and compassion that you should have. On the other hand, you won't be able to celebrate with people. 
Pride is, is, uh, makes you very threatened. It, it makes you feel when someone else comes along who is smarter than you, who's more successful than you, who's more attractive than you, it makes you feel less intelligent or less successful or less attractive or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, you want to run from that. You want to belittle that person. They entered the group and I got all the laughs and now they're getting all the laughs because they're more comical than I am. So I want, I want to make sure that everyone knows that, that, they're, you know, that they should get away from them. And all of a sudden, you can't, you can't celebrate the goodness in other people. You can't see their success and enjoy it. You can't, you can't have someone else get the promotion or the praise at work and you actually be glad for them deep down inside of you because there's pride there. You don't want people to tell you what to do. You don't like it when they get the laughs. All of it is this pride coming out of you. And these are things that we struggle with. I struggle with often. But John the Baptist is an example of a man who understood my position is a very humble position. In a moment where they're wanting to give him the spotlight, they're wanting to give him a platform, they're wanting to write news reports about him, they're wanting to to put the mic in his hand, they're wanting to proclaim himself. And that moment, which is very difficult to refuse... In that moment, John says, stop asking about me. Stop looking at me. Stop reporting about me. This is not about me. I'm just a voice. I'm just the guy making the way straight. You need to look at the one coming after me. You need to look at the king. You need to find the glory of the Lord. It's not here. It's elsewhere. I'm not the Messiah, but I can tell you where he is, and you can go talk to him. Stop asking about me. I'm just a dirt crew in front of Jesus is all that I am. I hope that we as followers of Jesus will get that. We'll get that and understand here's who he is and here's who we are. Second thing John understood was his mission. His position was it's not about me. His mission was it's all about Jesus. In case it wasn't already clear, we'll read another five or six verses. It'll make it abundantly clear. Verse number 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. So this is 24 hours later. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Remember the guy I was talking about yesterday? Remember the one that I was telling you to investigate and report and go after and and to look at him and, and and to put all the spotlight on him? Remember him? Here he is. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. The reason I'm here, the reason I'm baptizing is to make him manifest to Israel. All, the, all of my ministry is this little bit of platform so that I can put myself down and put Jesus up on the platform and say, this is what it's all about. This is John saying, the next day, here comes Jesus and he explodes. Behold, look, gaze upon Put your focus on Jesus, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I hope that means something to you. John says, here is the Lamb that is going to be slain to take away and atone for all sin. The the Jewish people audience would have known intrinsically what Passover was, what, what it was like to, to, 
to kill the lamb so that the death angel passed over. They would have known that in Jerusalem at that very moment, the sacrificial system was up and running and going, and people would bring their sacrifices, many times a lamb, to atone for or to cover their sin in a temporary way, but all it was was putting a Band-Aid on it. And John knows this, and he says, this is the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb from God, sinless, spotless, who is going to atone for and die and take away all the sin. This is the one you should be focused on. This is the sacrifice. This is Jesus. The theological term for this is expiation. It's, it's making amends for your guilt or your wrongdoing or atoning. And John says all of the guilt and all of the sin and all of the wrong, all of the punishment will be put on him and he will care for it all. Which means that we don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to work to pay for our sin. Jesus has removed our sin and he offers salvation via grace to anyone who will turn to him and believe on him. And John says, this is him. Then he says the last few verses here. John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. Speaking of when he baptized Jesus. And the Trinity showed up. There was a voice from heaven. The Father spoke. The Spirit descended. Jesus was there. And he says, I I was there. I saw this. This is him. I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. What John is saying is, let me tell you, there's something altogether different about Jesus. He is, he is in a category all on his own. I have long hair and I get people wet. He is going to take away the sins of the world. I was there at his baptism. I saw the Spirit of God come upon him. I heard the voice from heaven speak about him. I am immersing you with water, but he is going to place the presence and the power of God inside of you and baptize with the Spirit. This, this is the Son of God. This is, this is why I'm not worthy to clean his feet. And he is a whole nother category. I'm bearing witness that this is Jesus and this is who it's all about. It's my job to declare him. It's my job to make him known. He's the ransom for sin. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. Look at him. Now, I'll bottom shelf it for you and we'll be done. If you're a follower of Jesus, John's position and mission should be yours. It's that simple. You should have this heartbeat of he must become greater, I must become less until it is Christ alone. That I want him to be glorified, exalted, and lifted up. I do not need any of that, nor do I deserve it. And it is going to be Jesus and Jesus alone. I would be okay with our church being a one-trick pony and just doing that over and over and over and over again. Saying this is not about us. This is about Jesus, the end. This is honestly what our world needs. We don't need new policies. We don't need new politicians, although we're going to get some of those. We need spiritual change. People need Jesus. They need a relationship with Him. We need to be the dirt crew collectively that is preparing the way so that they can see Jesus and see the glory of God and turn to Jesus and believe on Jesus. If you are a follower, I hope that it's your goal. Leaving out of here, I have one very clear goal for the vast majority of my audience this morning is that you would leave out of here wrestling with your pride and and doing your best with the grace of God to take a humble approach to life and understanding that I want to exalt Jesus every chance I get. Say, oh, check, check, got that done. Okay. 
You exalt him every chance you get. Let's not even go every chance. Let's just go the plain chances. The coworker that you work with, that you know needs Jesus, you have a little bit of a relationship with, who you've been telling yourself you're going to talk to them about Jesus and, and glorify Jesus and exalt Jesus to them for how, how long now? Well, I'm, I'm waiting until I get to know them a little better. I mean, I just need a bigger inroad. I just need more relationship with them. Uh, okay, how about the people you have a relationship with then? The people who know you best, your family. You have extreme relationship with them. You know, the ones that are whatever, background, Catholic, atheist, whatever. You're going to see them at the holidays, spend some time with them. So, so you easily, because you have so much relationship with them, you, you declare Jesus to them really well. Well, no, 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 they, they know me too well. Like, they know my faults. And there's too much relationship there. Yeah. And I, I love you. I'm not mad at you. I, I struggle with the same things. There are times where I know I should speak up. I, I know I should exalt, and, it's, and I clam up. I, I'm there with you. But we're probably fooling ourselves if we think we got this figured out and there's no pride factored in and we don't care about what people think of us. It's not about us. We're low. We're just the dirt crew and it's all about Jesus. Yeah, we probably have some growing to do. If you're like me, you do. And I hope that we can wrestle with that and try to take the position and the mission of John the Baptist. I will say this and I'll be done. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you see that Jesus didn't come to squash your joy and rob you of all the blessings of life. He came to give you life and give you life more abundantly. You say, hold on. You told me that Jesus is high, and when I follow him, I'm supposed to be like John the Baptist, and I'm supposed to be low and humble? And it's not supposed to be about me, it's supposed to be all about him, and I just serve him, and, and, it, and it's, it's, it's not about me? It seems like I'm giving up a lot there. I'm not particularly attracted to humility and being a servant to somebody else and, and having a master of my life. But don't you see that is, that is life-giving? When it's all about you, pride steals your joy. You're boxed into a corner where you'll never win. You'll never win. If things go well, about time. Should have happened five years ago. If things don't go well, I'm, I'm owed more. What's the problem? Why am I not getting my due? You can't win and you can't have joy. But when you understand Jesus and you understand who you are and you have the humility that John the Baptist has, there is something extremely liberating and freeing about knowing I'm not that big a deal. I'm not that big a deal and it's, I'm free of that pressure. I don't have to carefully craft my appearance and make sure that I come off as, as, as pleasant and, and, and sweet to the taste to everybody and make sure that everyone likes me and, the, and, the, and I have to pander to everyone and their expectations of me. There's something extremely liberating where you can just say, you know what, it's not about me. I'm not that, I'm not that big of a deal. I'm not awesome. Jesus is awesome. And I just want to point you to him. That is life-giving. It's freeing. And you, and you have to live it to, to know it and believe it, I, I, I bet. But it is, if you don't know Jesus, you say, are you trying to convert me and get me to follow Jesus? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Not just for Jesus. It is for Jesus that you'll be on his team and glorify him, but for your own good. For your own good. To understand that that position and that mission is the best that you could possibly have in all of life. You can't get better than that. You can't. So if you know him, live it out. If you don't know him, you can know him today. You can know him today. You can have a relationship with him today. He wants to have a relationship with you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
to, to take inventory of your own heart, both in your pride and both in your exaltation and declaration of who Jesus is to other people, to assess those, to, to talk to God, pray on your own, and to tell him, man, there's some pride issue. Lord, forgive me. I'm wrong. I, I set it down. I, wa- I want to be less of me, more of you until you're everything. Tell him specifically the names of the people that you've been putting off. You have them on the back burner. Yeah, I'll talk to them and I'll declare Jesus and I'll, I'll give them the message eventually and, and list them and say, Jesus, help me. I want to tell them this week. I want to, I want to talk to them, message them, whatever it is this week. If you don't know Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to, to come to know him today and to put your faith and trust in him because he is, he is God who became man so that you can see the glory of God have relationship with God. He atoned for your sins. And you believing on him is not only logical, it's the best decision you'd ever make in your life.